Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary, a podcast about people who on the surface look totally ordinary, but they're not. Let's get right into the first episode. Michael Concilio was voted Teacher of the Year by his peers at St. James Academy. A beloved business teacher, he takes on the tough challenges that many teachers would reject because they would just be too hard. He teaches great classes like Intro to Business, Marketing, Entrepreneurship, Tech Courses, and Television News, also known as Journalism and Mass Media Career Explorations. He loves all of these classes. The students love them, too. But Mike wasn't always making a permanent impact on people's lives in a perfect brim career. As an 18-year-old, Mike didn't walk out of high school knowing what he wanted to do. In fact, he didn't like school much at all. He liked baseball, got a scholarship, and played college ball. And later, he had a series of random jobs. And then by accident, he wandered into real estate. He now owns six rental houses, has coached football, golf, girls golf, boys golf, and more. And this is daring. He was asked to teach television news when he knew nothing about filming, editing, broadcasting, or anything about TV when he was asked to teach this class. And yet he just jumped in. In fact, it's hard to rattle this guy. You give any other teacher a brand new class that isn't even in his field, and in six months, you might be looking at someone who could be in recovery from popping anti-anxiety meds as if they were M&Ms. And yet, Mike said yes. That's fine. The kids and I will learn as we go. I hope that's cool with you. Who does this? Not every teacher. Some people just prefer to teach the same class every year for 40 years and then call it a career. So I'd like to start on the subject of the TV news class. Hey, Mr. Adaptability. Hello, Mr. Webker. Thanks for having me. Mike, when they asked you to teach television news, what was your background in that kind of thing? You know, I actually had zero background, but... um... I was actually not just asked to do it, I volunteered myself to do it. So um, I heard about the class, I had some different ideas, I talked to a few different people about it, I kind of brainstormed what I kind of envisioned that to be. Mr. Talicki and I had actually talked about uh, possibly doing the morning announcements as a, a television news channel, I don't know, probably about a decade ago. Um, and we just didn't have the resources or equipment or knowledge to pull that off. And um, when I saw this opportunity, I kind of threw myself out there as um, somebody who, since there wasn't anybody else who was truly, you know, way more qualified than me, not that there aren't other people or teachers in the building that could have done it, done an amazing job, but I, I just wanted the challenge and I love those hands-on classes. So I jumped in and been figuring it out. Okay. So I, I kind of feel like a lot of teachers would enjoy a challenge, but I'm also kind of thinking, well, you're married, you have kids, you're, you know, coaching, you have four preps. This just seems like an awful lot. I mean, if somebody asked me to come and teach a new class like that, it, it would just make me think that's going to be a lot of work. And I don't know if I can understand the technical aspects. And how do I make a good story on TV news? I just, I think I would have been overwhelmed. I mean, did you ever have a feeling of overwhelm? Not really. It was, it was always something that was, and, you know, lucky for the administration to, to not put a lot of pressure to make it be like, okay, you have to rival Fox 4 News or this, that, and the other thing. Um, they didn't put a lot of pressure on it, and I didn't ever feel any pressure. I thought, you know what? Worst case scenario, we record the first week, it is absolute garbage, and we don't display it to anyone except ourselves. We learn from it and make the next one better. And that was kind of just the approach that we took throughout the semester. So anytime we ran into any hiccups, instead of looking at it as a, as a complete failure, we just said, hey, this is what we did wrong. Let's figure out how we can never do this again, and let's move on. I mean, it better. how many hours a week did it take? to just even get ready for the class? Um, you know, not all too much. A lot of it was actually just during class, figuring out the equipment. We have uh, Mr. Godinez, who is a you know, video marketer, and he has his own side business. So he was able to help us get started with all the equipment, show us how to do everything. Um, you, you know, that was, that was very, very helpful. And the kids, the kids just jumping in and figuring stuff out. And sometimes it would be... Mr. Concilio, how do we plug this mixer into this? I was like, oh, you know what? I don't know, but let's start plugging it in and recording and try and figure it out. And you know what? We will, if we have to try by failure and try by uh, um, trial by fire, then that's what we're going to do. 
I don't know, maybe I'm just a little bit of a nervous wreck, but I, I just, one of my fears would have been, I have 10, 15, 20 kids just standing around doing nothing while I'm trying to plug this thing in. I mean, just kind of the 70s stereotype of the instructor who can't figure out the mimeograph machine while kids are, you know, paper bombing each other. That just would have been my fear. Yeah, that I, I don't like that also. So um, we had different responsibilities each week. So we have, you know, one person in charge of editing, one person in charge of um, the equipment recording being the producer, one person in charge of the script, then different um, people in charge of stories, some people in charge of graphics. So everybody was moving, even if there was a hitch in one department. And the really cool thing about this class was um, you rotate positions. So the producers go to the journalists, the journalists move to the anchors, the anchors move to the editors, the editors move to uh, the producers. So And so everybody does everybody's job. So when there was a snag or there was something that went on, a lot of times the kids would jump right in and be like, yes, that happened to me too. Here's what I did. What do you think about this? And then somebody else would jump in and say, yes. And to make that even better, we plugged this in and, and moved on in this way. And, and this actually made it a lot better and easier to edit for so on and so forth. So it was actually the kids end up teaching the kids. But it's just it's a ton of creative thinking and problem solving. And, and I think those are just two invaluable skills that, that we could all learn as, um, as students. So, like, let's say I'm a kid, I'm 16 or 17, I come into your class, and I just don't know anything. By the end of the semester, you kind of make it sound like I could do the whole thing. I could find a story, I could write the story, I could film the story, I could edit it, I could produce it, I could put it out there to the world, you know, start to finish and have a pretty polished good thing. Um, look, I, I think people would pay a lot of money for something like that, those type of skills. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really cool that you can take a lot of the different classes that we have, especially in the business and tech department, and and that's what it ends up being. Like you teach personal finance, and and when they walk out of personal finance, they they have a really good idea, they have a really good map of what I need to do to set myself up for um, for the future. And you know the same type of thing in journalism or podcasting or web design or any of those types of uh, um, classes that we teach. Okay, well, very cool. Uh, what was that very first episode like? And uh, I don't know, just when did you feel like you started to hit your stride? I would say it probably took probably about five or six episodes into first semester for us to really hit our stride. We recorded, oh my gosh, we, we messed up so much, and we can laugh about it now. At the time, it was rather excruciating and painful, but... Um, the first one, we we couldn't get um, everybody on board to use microphones, so it's had people interviewing other people in echoey hallways, and the one would be one segment would be super loud, the other would be um, really quiet, and you couldn't understand, and, and it was just kind of a mess. And we had no frame of how long we wanted this episode to be. So our first episode was like 19 minutes and our anchors did a terrible job. And I take full responsibility for every, every one of them because I was in charge of making sure they used microphones and I was in charge of making sure the editors knew how to adjust the volume of people's voices. And I was in charge of what the anchors were doing and what they're doing with their hands and were they smiling, were they blinking, all of those different things. Um, so it was a total failure on me if you want to look at it that way or it was a great way to learn a whole lot really, really, really fast. You couldn't pull any of that out of a textbook because we had it on video. We produced it. And we were like, we've got to get better. But we knew we could get better, so it was really cool. So when did you actually feel like you hit your stride with this then? Yeah, like I said, five or six episodes in. I mean, the second one was way better than the first. The third one was way better than the second. And the fourth one, we screwed up the green screen. And so there was a, um, oh, I think it was Kayla, who's blonde hair, mixed in with the green screen, and we couldn't pull it off. And so there were like green blotches everywhere. So we had to cut the entire episode. Um, and we thought that was going to be because we were recording in Mr. Godinez's office and it was a confined space. We thought, you know what, we need to be like six feet away from this green screen. So the following week, week four or five, we, uh, we changed locations and we tried to record in the boardroom. And so, and we only have an hour and 15 minutes to record during fifth hour. So we pull everything in the boardroom. We get the green screen set up. We have the anchors desk. We have everything ready to roll. We got lights. And then we realized that the camera is too close to the anchors. 
And so we have to move this big boardroom table. And this thing's gigantic. Like, it, I, 20 people sit at this thing. And so uh, we go ask uh, the maintenance department, hey, we need to move this table out of the way. So we, and they're like, no, 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 no. That table does not move. So we have makeshift tripods, and we're running down to the very end. We record the entire episode. And something that we didn't think about doing is we didn't do a sound check before. And so there are these overhead ducks right in the boardroom. And all you can hear is... Throughout the whole episode, and it, we tried to cut and filter it out. It was it was too much, and we had to scrap that episode. So here we are, two weeks in a row, scrapping these episodes, pulling our hair out because the, everybody's doing work, and it was very frustrating. But then at the same time, I was like, guys, we're the first people to ever do this. We have to figure this out to save everybody in the future. Next semester is going to be so much easier because you guys are, are problem solving and figuring this all out. It's nobody's fault. This is how we learn. And the kids were great. They didn't give up. They just kept on going. And um, that sixth episode, after those two epic failures where we couldn't even put out a 10-minute episode, that was, that was I thought, the best uh, – the best one of the entire semester. Okay, now, I, honestly, I think this is something a lot of people would want to know, which is, how do you stay so relaxed? I mean, you've got kind of this reputation as just Mr. Even Keel. I mean, dumpster fire over here, Chernobyl over there. Mike's like, put on your radiation suit. It's going to be fine. I think just adaptability um, and flexibility in whatever you do is is the key to so many different things. I was a pitcher in college and you know what? Sometimes you'd go out there and you know, you can't locate your fastball. You can't throw a curveball. Like things just don't work out and you have to problem solve. And if you sit there and you feel sorry for yourself and you complain about stuff, nothing's going to work. You're not going to fix the problem, right? You have to go and you have to adapt. Same thing when I was playing or coaching football, you know what? A lot of times I would have a defensive game plan that I spent 40, 50 hours building, we worked on all week, and three plays in, that goes in the trash can, and we have to adapt, and we have to be flexible, and we have to figure out what the issue is and how we are going to stop it, and I just think all those principles come right into it. You could associate it to golf. You know what? Some days, I'm going to come out, and my driver's going to be straight off the tee, and then I can't putt worth a lick, and the other days, my irons are going to be all missing left, and I can't figure out why. And it's just all about adapting, being flexible, but keeping a positive mindset and and knowing that there's an end goal in sight and what do we have to do to get to that end goal. Wow. Okay. Man, I, I've got a million follow-up questions on that, but I, I'm just going to let those sit for a little while because I'm just going to have to kind of think through like, well, how? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say be adaptable, but, but how? How can you be adaptable? You know, that's a good question. Maybe it's just my, my personality. Um, I don't know, maybe it was my, uh, maybe it was my dad. Cause my dad would just say, here's what I need done. You guys need to figure it out. I'll never forget the time. Um, my brother and I worked for my dad. He was an entrepreneur. He had his own business, industrial, uh, supply business. And we would go down, you know, my friends are sleeping in, I don't know, going to the pool over the summer. And my brother and I went down and worked at the office because he had to travel. So somebody had to work in the office. And so we went down there and I'll never forget the day that, um, we're down in Kansas city, Kansas, 78th and Leavenworth road. And he calls and he's in like, I don't know, North Dakota, Boulder, Colorado, something like that. He goes, Hey, here's what I need. I need a 55 gallon drum of whatever, some type of, uh, industrial lubrication, load it up into the truck and drive it down to Coffeeville. It needs to be there by 4 p.m. today. And my brother and I look at each other and we're like, all right, well, the forklift's broken. So him and I have to figure out how to build some type of ramp to push a 55-gallon barrel of oil, which is luckily my brother's really strong. Um, it would have smashed me. But And then we had to create this like pulley system and... Anyway, it took a really long time for two teenagers to figure out how to do this and then hop in my truck and here I am, 16 years old. We're ratcheting this thing down to my truck that hopefully gets there and I'm driving whatever it is three hours down to Coffeeville, Oklahoma on a Friday to try to get there by 4 o'clock. It wasn't something that you had a choice about. It wasn't something that you complained about. It was something that needed to be done and 
the livelihood of our family kind of depended on are we going to figure this out or not so i don't know that maybe that maybe that helps but i mean those types of situations were common yeah, yeah pretty common common pretty common for sure okay okay um it's a great skill to race kids with that is for sure well just I want to congratulate you just on taking on something that was brand new, that had technical challenges, it had creative and writing challenges, it had, you know, on-air production challenges, it had teaching kids who might be stiff to be anchors and to be interesting challenges. I mean, it's it's really just a ton of skills, and then you're managing teenagers at the same time, and, you know, yes, you've got your straight-A kids who will just crawl across broken glass to get the job done. I can think of a few of them, but then you also have your kid who's, you know, I mean, if they make a 70% or a C minus in every single class, uh, they're totally cool with that. I mean, how did you handle the kids who were kind of like, Hey, you know, I'm just, I'm totally relaxed. You know, I don't have any worries. I don't have any worries till Thanksgiving when my parents get on me about my grades. How did you handle those kids? Um, you know, that it, it's difficult, but finding a balance between constructive criticism and just criticism is difficult, especially in the, in the news class, um, because you don't want to just come out and crush somebody's spirits and say, gosh, Tim, that segment sucked. <laughs> Cause you don't know, they could have spent 10 hours on this segment and it might've looked like garbage. And ultimately that's my fault. That's not his fault or her fault. So criticism in a way but then also they could have spent seven minutes on it and done it right before school or on their way into school today and uh and then they might deserve that it sucked so um finding that balance in there is is interesting but just trying to figure out how how you can hold them accountable but at the same way um i felt like when everybody had different segments that they were bringing into one show it was kind of like kind of like a team sport where one person does hold that, you know, like if that left tackle doesn't block his guy, Patrick Mahomes can't do his thing, right? And he has to be able to block that guy. And all 11 pieces have to work together. You know, if everybody blocks the guy, Mahomes throws a great ball and Tyreek Hill drops it, well, that doesn't work. We can't have one piece that that isn't working along with, with the entire team. So that, that's kind of the approach that we took, and it, it ended up working really, really well. And the, especially with the kids helping out each other and holding each other accountable was was very, okay. very good. How, how do you create that team spirit with people? Because, I mean, some classes, uh, I don't know, they just uh, they bifurcate. They split, like you got this group, you have that group, they don't want to talk to each other. How do you create that team spirit? Um, in some classes, it's tougher than others. But... Um, Especially when we're working towards one common goal uh, in the journalism class, I feel like it's it's really pretty easy to get that going and everybody working together. And some people will hate doing one part, and some people will absolutely love doing another part. So um, we try to pair each other up a lot, and then try to change partners throughout the semester too, so you can learn off of each other. But also, you know, the way that you want to do a segment might be completely different than the way that I want to do a segment. But we can both learn from each other because. You like putting background music in. I like doing funny skits or impromptu jokes or whatever. But we can both work together um, to come up with something really creative. So. Were, were they all kind of like inherently engaged? Like, I guess I'm not hearing that anybody was like disengaged. Like, oh, I'm bored. This stinks. I wish I would have taken algebra. Maybe not that I wish I would have taken algebra. But yes, there was some disinterest. And what I found was the... the fascinating thing was the more responsibility you gave them mm. the more that they jumped into it so okay. like if they were just a journalist they might have been the crappiest journalist known to man but when they got to producer like they were oh this is my show this is my time this mm. is this is what i want and they would be directing and they'd be correcting and i was like who is this kid this is awesome <laughs> right so maybe i just have him in the wrong spot right it's like oh why am i gonna put Mahomes at left tackle he's a quarterback right yeah find find their positions where they can help the the team the most so my my dad was always kind of that way he was a baseball coach and he just you know said that the key was always getting right people in right positions and uh, they made like, I don't know, I want to say five state tournament trips in seven years. Wow. Uh, this was after he was 65 years old, you know, really about the time when he thought he should belong in a rocking chair or something. Then he was going to the state tournament. So, but he said the same thing. So that's, I guess, maybe the highest praise I can give you is you just said something my dad would say. So, 
which is just very, very cool. It's awesome. Uh, I kind of want to pick your ideas on the ideal career, but actually kind of first I want to back up and just sort of ask you your secret origin story. Like if we went back to high school, was there just, you know, what were your thoughts? Like, what am I going to do with my life? What is my career going to be? Um, you know, I don't remember anybody asking me, not that it's anybody's responsibility to make sure that I have a satisfying or fulfilling career. Um, but I don't remember doing a whole bunch of career exploration or anything like that. Um, graduated from college or excuse me, graduated from high school, average, average high school student, and, uh, just decided to go to, to college to, and basically it was, I picked my college based upon playing baseball rather than any academic or major or whatever. Uh, my dad was, um, he owned his own business. My brother had graduated from college at that point, and he went to work for my for my father as well. Business classes always it, it just I I was good at business just naturally, probably from being around it for so long, um, all all throughout growing up. And so when I went into college, I ended up majoring in business. I still had no idea. I even remember the day I was asking my dad, like, what I have to pick a major? Like, do I pick marketing, finance? Um, business administration, what do I do? And, and he just, he said, pick whichever one you want. You can do just fine in either one, any one of them. Just pick whichever one you want. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Usually my dad had very specific opinions, mm-hmm. but he didn't really have one about that. Um, so I, I, I guess I just, I kind of just went through the steps, even through college, and I never really thought about where I was going to work after college. Um, so I got my degree. Still had no idea what I was going to do. So I went to a couple uh, career fairs. And if I could give anybody some maybe guidance before, like have an idea of an industry that you want to work in or some type of job title or responsibilities that you want to do. Um, it, it might not be the perfect job, but like just going to a, a career fair and just hoping to get a job is probably not a very good strategy. So that's obviously the one that I went with. Um and I got I got two interviews that day, and I ended up going and um, I got a second interview with one company. I got a second interview with another company. Then I um, got offered a job with one where I still had a I was going to do like a shadow day with another um, business as part of their interview process. So I ended up taking one of the jobs, and it was it was awful. It was in sales, and it was in the fitness industry. And I I really enjoy working out. I enjoy health. I like sales. Unfortunately, I didn't probably do as much research as I should have within this particular company. I don't want to say any names of any companies, but it's not around anymore. Um, But it was the fitness industry, and it was just the most torturous job, working for the most torturous boss. And it it was painful to think about going to work the next day. Like, the minute you clock out, I'm automatically thinking like, oh my gosh, I have to go back tomorrow this is painful. Um, so I went from there and that job lasted about three weeks. It was, that's probably about three weeks too long. Um, and then I ended up just finding another job. I actually went to a restaurant cause I worked at a restaurant when I was in college. I worked at a restaurant when I was in high school as well. Um, when it wasn't baseball or football season and I really enjoyed it. It was fast paced. The shifts went quick. The money was decent. So I just went down to a restaurant down the street from, uh, my brother's house and I ended up getting a job and I ended up working there for like four years and I loved it. It was fantastic. Even after, um, even after I got a job, I still worked on weekends at the restaurant and that told me that I was like, Hey, I really like this. This is, this didn't really feel like work as much as a lot of other businesses that I had. And then, yeah, anyway, um, sorry, I have no idea if I actually answered the question no, that you were looking for. Was I on somewhat yeah, of the right track? I, I kind of wanted to know the secret origin story, what you're doing. You kind of did high school. You kind of did college. Uh, you talked a little bit about the baseball. You had this crap job that lasted three weeks. Oh, and uh, then you got into the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess now I'm totally curious, how do we go from restaurant business, four years, money's pretty good, kind of like it, fast-paced, social, uh, how do we go from that to, oh, now we're a teacher and we're a coach? Yeah. So I actually met somebody working at the restaurant that hired me to work for his business. So I ended up going and doing exporting 
um, international logistics for about a year and a half, two years. And I did that. And we were moving containers out of the United States into other countries, mainly Costa Rica and China. Um, but I did that for about two years. And I was sitting at a cubicle, talking on the phone, working on my computer, not interacting with any humans. I mean, yes, over the phone, you know, I sent a lot of emails. I was an account manager, did some inside sales. It was bloody boring. Like, I don't know if, if you've ever seen me in class or at a staff meeting. I don't sit down very well. Like, sitting in a cubicle is torturous to me. So um, I had to get up. So, like, if somebody said, oh, the copier jammed again, I would hop out of my seat. I would be more than happy to go try to figure out this problem solve and figure out what, what was wrong with this copier. Or uh, I need another box pulled out of storage from a file from four years ago. Hey, I'd be happy to walk the three blocks over to the storage place and get the file. Like, no problem. Um and that's when I realized, I was like, gosh, I, I hate my job again. Like, this is terrible. Uh, people that I worked with was great. Boss was great. Money was okay. But the, the actual job, the fulfillment of the job was just painful. And my skills fit it. That, that was the other thing. Like, my skills actually fit this job. I could be really, really good at this job. Um, it was pretty easy for me. But it just, it was just the same thing. Like, you're just... It's like moving blocks from the left side of the room over to the right side of the room. You say, I'm done, boss. And he goes, okay, let's move them back from the right side of the room over to the left side of the room. And you're like, oh, here we go. This is awesome. Okay. So after that, that's when I decided I wanted to do something different. And I had thought about in college, probably about my senior year, um, about going into teaching. That was probably the first time that I really thought about what I wanted to do. But at that point, You've been in college for so long. You just wanted to get out. You didn't want to go into any more debt or anything like that. Your parents are ready for you to be out on your own, to get off their insurance, to, to pay for your own cell phone, all this type of stuff. And so I was ready to graduate. And then that's where I was like, ah, I got to figure out a way to go back and, and give this thing a shot. That was probably one of the biggest risks that I've ever taken in my life because I went out and spent darn near $20,000, a ton of time to go back and get certified in order to teach. I didn't even know if I was going to get hired. I landed on a really good year when I got my teaching certificate. It was 2008, right, when I got my teaching certificate. So that was when I was student teaching. Um, so that was really convenient when we were just headed right into a recession and everybody was cutting teaching jobs, not hiring any business teachers. If you get a job, it was probably like math, science. And I ended up actually getting a job at St. James to teach web design within that. So um, actually, sidebar, the uh, probably the longest eight weeks of my life, I had two different times. One was my last summer of college. I took 18 credit hours in eight weeks over the summer, which was excruciatingly painful. There was no time for anything besides it was school, study, sleep, school, study, sleep for eight straight weeks. That was really, really painful when all my friends were doing other really, really fun stuff. Um, and then the other one was when I was student teaching because I had a job. I had, or excuse me, I had student teaching. I had a teacher who didn't know anything about technology. So all he had was like these overhead projectors of his notes. And so I had to go through all of the different content. I had to create all of my worksheets. I had to create all my videos. I had to create all my projects, everything from scratch. And business teachers, technology teachers, there were four preps while I was student teaching. So that was excruciating. That was a full-time job right there. But also I had my mortgage. I had bills. I had a car payment. I had a little bit of debt at the time. So I had to continue to work. So I had to continue to work 40 to 50 hours at the restaurant along with student teaching for another 40 hours. And then the time that was left, I had to figure out grading and lesson planning and project planning. So I apologize to all of those <laughs> students <laughs> when I was a student teacher because I was average at best. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm better now. But that was a very, very, very long eight weeks of student teaching. That was really, really tough. How did you not have a nervous breakdown I think you just have to push on, like just knowing that there's an end in sight, kind of like the whole coronavirus thing. Everybody was really, really sad and depressed until we started getting some of these timelines and phases and they could see the end of the light. I think just knowing that, hey, this is eight weeks and this is going to suck for eight weeks. Yeah. But it's eight weeks. Okay. There's 52 weeks in a year. So what's eight weeks, right? And, and I just want to back up and make a note for people. So when you took 18 credit hours in a summer, okay, that is the equivalent of 36 credit hours over the course of a semester. Because the semester is twice as long. And, you know, if you did 18 credit hours in a typical semester, I, that's just brutal. 
That taps 18 is brutal. And here you did this in the summer and some people are like, yeah, but the summer classes are easier. Um, not always, not always. Um, that's, I taught college for 20 years at UMKC and uh, it can be a crapshoot. And certainly 36 is not easier. That's just ridiculous. I, I just, how did you, did you sleep? I did sleep, um, but luckily I don't require a lot of sleep, so it's fine. I never really have, so um, that's fine. I was really fortunate in the way every all the pieces fell in just kind of perfectly. Like some of the class, like one of the classes was a two-week intercession class, so it was done after two weeks. Three of the classes were eight-week classes, so I had them the entire time. Um, two of the other classes were... Um, I believe night classes. So I'd go Tuesday, Thursday for one night class for eight weeks. And then the other one was Monday, Wednesday, um, hour and a half or three hours, whatever. I think there were three hour classes for eight weeks. And so they really kind of spread out. It didn't lessen the work at all, but like one class ended and then another class would start. And so that kind of, that helped a lot because if it were just going to class from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day, I would I would probably would have lost it. That would have been a long time. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I got some. Now, granted, the, the work doesn't stop because most of the people, most of the teachers think that, oh, they're in this one class or they're in this one night class throughout the semester to try to get ahead of themselves or so they only have to take 12 hours next semester. So they're not afraid to give you a lot of work. Um, it was hard. Yeah, it was okay. hard. Luckily, I didn't have any roommates. There were no distractions in Manhattan over the summer. Like, everybody goes back to Kansas City or St. Louis or Salina or Wichita, wherever they come from. So there was not a lot to do. I had a whole apartment to myself, um, and I was really broke. I didn't turn the air conditioning on the entire summer that I was there. It's on the third floor. (laughs) I used to do that, too, until, like, I don't know, got past 30. And then I'm just like, I can't take it. It's 100 degrees. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was a dumb idea. Like, pay $200 for electricity. Yeah, you save nothing. I mean, I turned on the electricity, and my bill shot up by a whopping $30. And I was like, this is what I did 100 degrees for? Right. Now, I did cancel cable. I think that was a wise decision because that's something that can drain your time rather quickly or distract you. So, And it was saving money as well. So, Okay. Uh, so uh, why teaching? Because I, I want to get into how to pick the ideal career, but how did you decide that teaching was the thing for you? Because if I were going to go back to school, I mean, suddenly it's a kaleidoscope. I mean, there's 3,000 options that you could explore career-wise. Why teaching? Yeah, Uh I don't know. I just, I like the idea of, um, talking about stuff that I'm passionate about, talking about stuff that I'm interested in helping other people. And to be completely honest with you, like I've always loved sports. Sports has been a huge part of my entire life. I've played four sports since I was, you know, four years old. I've always been part of a team and I love the idea of getting back into sports. I'm too old to play sports. I, Eventually, everybody gets to a point where they say, you're not good enough to play baseball anymore. I was already past that point. So I wanted a way that, not just that I could give any knowledge that I possibly had to um, to students or athletes, but you know it, that it could be a reciprocating relationship. And um, I could be involved in sports, but also helping other people and working as a team and being part of a team and a coaching staff. And yeah, well, luckily we have some really great teams and coaches and people and and student athletes at our school that I just kind of fell into a really awesome awesome position. Okay, but I that's I think it fits your personality in a great way. You're very social, you want to help people, you like sports, you like business. But I'm also kind of thinking you do like business. And uh you, you know, you certainly would not object if you were making say, you know, $100,000 a year. I would sign uh, a contract for that, sure. Yeah. So what made you think, you know, teaching, uh, especially at a private school, okay, the median income in the United States, last time I checked, was between fifty and 55000 a year. Uh, you know, teachers do reach the median, and after they've been there a while, they exceed the median. But in a private school, you might be making, I don't know, I looked it up, maybe about 90% of what you're making in a public school. And you might definitely start off below the median. So, I mean, we're going to go back to school, we're going to put in all this time, all this work, all this effort. And then we're going to make below the median. And you're a business-minded guy. How did you reconcile that in your mind? Um, you know, it really goes to 
I don't know. I've, ta- I've talked to a lot of different people, and I'm, and I'm very upfront. If you've ever taken my business class or stepped into business class, I'm very upfront about, about finances. I'm not shy to tell you like what my mortgage balance is or what the interest rate on my uh, home loan is, whatever. But I've talked to a bunch of people, and if I can get them to open up about their finances, I've talked to people that make $300,000 a year that are completely stressed out about money, and I've talked to people who make $25,000 a year who are completely stressed out about money. And I've talked to people who make $70,000 a year and they're like, I have no problem with money. And I've talked to people who make $32,000 a year and they're like, I have more than I could ever need. Right? So I don't think it matters. I think if you, yeah, a hundred sounds great. Sign me up, send over the contract. I'd be happy to Happy to sign it right now, but I don't know that happiness from fifty thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars. I don't think that that really works together that way. Um, I think it all depends on what you're doing, how you're doing it, who you're doing it for, hmm. right? Kind of like the three economic questions in business or economics. Yeah. Um, but also, how you handle your money is far more important than well, I shouldn't say far more important, but. From a personal finance standpoint, if you handle your money at $50,000, you could be far better off than the guy living paycheck to paycheck for $100,000. So, you know, having a, having a job for every dollar that you make is, is kind of my philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Just basic money management and budgeting, which I have heard 28% of the American population does do. My feeling is that's the 28% that sleeps well, and then 72% don't. They just have kind of an idea in their head, and they say, ah, uh, yeah, I think I kind of know where I'm at for the month. Uh, let's think about something else. You want to think about something else? I want to think about something else. <laughs> I just kind of think that's maybe the group that's stressed out. Uh, I tend to kind of agree with that philosophy. Okay, so like, let's say I am 17, and I come to you, and I say, Mr. Concilio, uh, I've taken your classes. I really respect you. I just have no idea what I should do in college or after, uh, what do I do? I mean, how do I find out what I should do? I think it's kind of like uh, um, the journalism class. Like, well, let's figure it out. That that was actually part of my strategy when I went back to work at the restaurant. I actually thought that I was possibly wanting to be a restaurant manager. So what better way to figure out if you go into restaurant management than to work at a restaurant? I found out pretty quickly that the managers were completely stressed out. They got yelled at by the owners all the time. They worked 90 hours a week. Their family lives were very, very poor because at a restaurant you work nights, you work weekends, your days off are Monday and Tuesday, but you still have to come in for inventory on Monday. So you really get one day off a week, right? You're going to miss all of your kids' activities. You're not going to probably get along with your wife very well. I mean, it's it's very, very hard work. And I found that out real quick. So I was like, okay, let's cross that off the list. Let's move on to the next thing. So I think I would give you that as, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's good advice. Maybe that's poor advice but like jump in and figure it out jump in and figure it out absolutely you don't have to be the ceo of apple to find out if you like technology or not go work in a technology field find out if that's right for you and maybe it's the industry maybe it's the business maybe it's a boss maybe i would have loved selling fitness memberships to somebody else for a different company Hmm. but it just didn't work for for the one that i tried i'm kind of hearing that you really can't know until you try things I would say that's true. Now, everybody might be different, but I would say trying it will give you the best idea of what to expect. See, that seems like common sense to me, but I really want to say that's not what we do in America. I I feel like what we do is is we take high school classes, we sit in a chair, uh, we either read the books or we read the spark notes and don't read the books. Then we go on to college, and uh, if we survive college, we kind of do the same thing throughout college, and then... Uh, We're 22, 23, and then we say, finally, my real life begins. I'm going to do what I wanted to do, and then we get into it, and then we're like, oh, my gosh, this sucks. I hate this so bad. Now what? Uh, You know, to me, it just seems like we should figure out a way to jump in when we're 16 or 17. If I want to work for a tech company, I don't know, figure out a way to be an intern or something at a very early age. Find out if you love it. Find out if you hate it. Uh, Thoughts? I think that's really good advice, but also, I mean, things change. I mean, things in your life, in my life, they change all the time. What I thought was super interesting and fun when I was a teenager, 
that was part of my passion and interest, if you had asked me, I would have said, I love audio technology and I love music. Well, now I'm almost 40 and music's not really a big part of my life and I don't mess with audio technology whatsoever. So that's completely changed. So if I were to get into, you know, custom home speaker build outs or something, I would probably be in the wrong industry later in life. So everything changes. Um, your work hours change. How many weeks of vacation change? How much um, your salary is dependent upon, you know, how many kids do I? Do I have 15 kids like Mr. Two Jack or do I just have two like Mr. Concilio? Like that might that might alter some of the uh, the different things that I look for in a job. So I don't know. I, I think that's really good advice, but also at the same time, like things change. Okay. I don't know. In five years, I might not be a teacher anymore. I might be going to do something else. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. We roll with things. Now, kid comes to you and says, I really want to follow my passion. Everybody says, follow your passion. Uh, Mr. Concilio, my problem is I don't know what my passion is. That sucks. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Following your passion, yeah, that's great. I always say more so of your interests and your skills, okay? Because if you're interested in it, you can develop that passion. If you're good at it, you can develop that passion. You don't have to be super passionate about one particular thing and say, that's what I have to do with my life. But I believe if you follow your interests and your skills, the talents that you have, like let's just take my my father, for instance, okay? He got into industrial supplies. I can honestly tell you he was not passionate about industrial supplies before he went into the industry. He was passionate about sales. He worked for other sales companies. Um, He did a number of different jobs. And then he found a little niche or a loophole within this industrial supply um, area, especially geographically. And he got into it. And then once he got into it, I mean, the sales skills were always there, but then he had to figure out how to run his own company, how to do the accounting. That was not the greatest thing that uh, he didn't really want to do that. He was actually an accountant earlier in life. And he was like, you know what? I don't enjoy doing that anymore. So I'm going to outsource that and I'm going to have somebody else do that. And you know what? I don't like sitting in the office. So I'm going to hire somebody else to do that, sit in the office and do, and do phone calls. So, um, he wasn't completely passionate about industrial supply, but he was completely passionate about talking to people, Mm -hmm. helping them figure out how his products could help them save money, be more efficient, make their lives easier, make them look really good for their boss, so on and so forth. And so I don't think you have to do it just based on everything that you're passionate about, but maybe one skill or one um, one talent that you maybe have. Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of hearing you say uh, follow the thing that's right in front of you, uh, follow maybe your interests and your skills. And if you're good at a particular thing, then jump into that. And like, let's say it's industrial supplies, but I'm just not terribly interested in industrial supplies, but if it's an honest product, a good product, then maybe it's really more about the people. Sure. It's more about the people that were. So then uh, let me ask this. Let's say your 16-year-old son comes to you and says, you know, I'm so grateful that I went out for all the theater shows, you know, in high school here, and uh, I want to become an actor. I want to write screenplays for Hollywood. Uh, They make, I don't know, 150 movies a year, but I think mine could be the one. And, uh, and, and I just want to be an actor. Um, what's your thoughts, Dad? This is my son? Yeah. I'm going to go tell him to marry a doctor lady. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the best advice I could give him. Then he can write all the shows he wants. Um, no, but it's all, you can do anything you want as long as you, again, live within your means. And, yeah, you can make... 12 bucks an hour if you live within your means. You might not be able to do that in Los Angeles, California, outside of a cardboard box. But living within your means, budgeting, and, and you know, Mike Rowe is the hard work guy. I believe hard work plays a, plays a major factor. I don't think it's the only factor, but I think it plays a, a major factor in there. So hard work, dedication, having a job for every single dollar that you make, and um, living within your means. Okay. Go be a screenwriter. That's fine. You mentioned Mike Rowe, too, and I think this is interesting. I mean, they call it the skills deficits, and I can't remember what the number was, but before the, uh, you know, the unemployment surged in 2020, uh, you know, they were looking at seven to eight million blue-collar jobs that were going unfulfilled, and uh, the salaries for these jobs were just shooting up the roof. Uh, top elevator repairman, $110,000 a year. 
uh, average plumber, $58,000 a year. This is assuming that you are working for somebody else. You know, if you are working for yourself, then maybe it's twice as much. Maybe it's three times as much. These blue-collar jobs are kind of invisible out there, and uh, I, I've got a list of 20 of them that pay well above the median income. Some are double the median income. Uh, how does a kid get into one of those if they're invisible, like nobody talks about them, nobody sees them? Uh, I guess, I don't know, how do we expose kids to this sort of thing? How do we make kids think, oh, this could actually be a good life? Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I didn't really grow up around one of those specific trades. Um, but I would think a lot of people that end up growing up around those type of trades end up falling into those type of trades, um, whether it's a family business or whatnot, something like straw construction or um, the male family owns the plumbing service, um, lots of different ones. But um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I, I think it's just bringing it up to different people. And and then I think it's I think it's kind of our job as teachers, too, to say, hey, I think this might be something that you'd be good at mm -hmm. and something you'd be interested in. And then it's going to be all follow-up from, you know, everybody from the teacher to the counselor to the student who's going to – I mean, they have to want to do it, too, um, and to look into some of these types of things. Because I know I hired an electrician the other day, and holy smokes – if I paid him that much, they're doing all right. They're they're doing very very well for themselves. So, um, and and every time that I hire somebody, they're always book solid, and they charge a lot of money, and <clears throat> there's never enough of them, and there's never enough good ones. Yeah, it always seems like they're, and maybe it's because they're so busy, but they don't have enough time in the day to fill all of the needs of all the customers, and I find that fascinating. I'm just going to encourage listeners to look into this because, uh, I guess, long story, when I was a kid, uh, these jobs were, I don't know, maybe just kind of made fun of in the popular culture, like, oh, look, plumber's crack, what an idiot. And, uh, you know, it turns out these people are making above the median income. Some of them are making like, you know, one and a half times the median income. If they're working for themselves, maybe they're making double or triple. Uh, my grandpa was an electrician. Uh, he worked hard so that my mom could be first generation college. My parents worked hard so that I could be second generation college. And then I was your classic nerd with a double major. Now I am thinking, well, maybe the next generation, I just want to present options to them. That's all. I'm a big fan of college. I taught college for 20 years. I lived, breathed, ate, and slept college. I just have come to realize, well, these blue collar jobs, you're providing a real service for people and they just pay quite a lot of money. And uh, you just maybe have to follow the supply and the demand. I, it's just been kind of an eye-opener for me. I guess I'm late to the party, but this is something I've learned in the last few years. Yeah, and, and I know we're both teachers, and I'm pro-education, but I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't think college is for everybody. And it's not. Honestly, somebody like me coming out of high school, if some of these trade schools or hands-on, again, I don't like sitting at desks. I, I like working with my hands. I like working with people and talking to people. Um, this... Some of these trades, they could have been a perfect fit for my personality and my skill set, so, but I just I never heard anything about them or knew anybody that was doing these types of things. It was always perceived to me like you go to, you go to high school, you graduate from high school, and you go to college, and then you get a job after that. Like That's exactly what was said, but I, I think there is something to, like, why go into $80,000 worth of college loan debt mm -hmm. to do something that doesn't fit your skill set or you're passionate about and... You could have gone, you know, been working in the in the workforce within a year, making a lot more money and being successful at it. You know, one other thing that I, I think I want to ask about careers is just along the lines of a plan B. And uh, I guess it's your real estate ventures that I'm thinking about. You own six houses. Uh, I guess, first of all, how did you have any time to get into real estate, given everything else, given the, the four preps, the coaching, the husbandhood, the babyhood how did you have any time to get into real estate um i don't I, I think you just make time you know you just make time i i remember you know there would be weekends where the the first duplex that we owned somebody moved out and it was like well the carpets need to be cleaned and and we need to paint the walls so you know, if we're going to spend family time, I bring my wife down and we paint it in half the time. We spend our spend time together. We clean the carpets. 
instead of me spending two days down there, we paint it, clean the carpets in one day, we hang out all day, and then we end up going to the lake or her parents' pool or something like that. So I, I think you just make time. If it's a priority in your life, you make time for it. That is something that she probably thought was very romantic. Yeah, she didn't really like it that much, but that's okay. She loves it now, and we don't have to do that stuff now. Now we've gotten to a point where it really doesn't take all that much time. It's more of putting your dollars to work rather than putting your time to work, and that's one of the things that after reading you know, Robert Kiyosaki's books is, is how can I get my dollars to go to work for me so that I don't have to go to work? That's kind of where I'm trying to go. He had a really great line where he said that uh, once a dollar gets into an investment, never, ever let it come out. Let it go into that investment and just keep working and make more dollars. Just don't let it back out once it goes in. I love it. I really like that a lot. So uh, six houses, uh, any plans to buy more? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, so whatever my salary is right now, I would like to generate as much passive income so that it replaces my salary and I'll just keep reinvesting and reinvesting until it gets into that. I don't take any money out for personal use or to go buy a Corvette or whatever. I don't, I don't need any of that stuff. Um, so I just reinvest, reinvest, keep on getting more passive income. And then the day that that passive income reaches my salary is what I'm going to call the day that I'm financially free because okay. I don't have to show up to work. I can write myself a check every month and that check is going to keep on showing up and keep on showing up. And then who knows, maybe I'll keep teaching. Maybe I'll be a substitute. Maybe I'll work at a golf course. Maybe I'll um, travel somewhere. Maybe I'll, I don't know. See, and to me, that's financial freedom for you, but it's also good, affordable housing for other people. And that's a virtue in the economy. That's a virtue for the world, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, I think I've got one last career question, and uh, then we'll take it from there. But it's this. you know, it's one thing to tell people, I don't know, follow your passion or go to college or just see what turns up, you know, when there's 4% unemployment out there. But what about if there's 25% unemployment? What if we're back to 1932? Uh, I mean, just what if, uh, you know, things are entering into some sort of a worldwide depression? Uh, What's a good job if there's 25% unemployment? I think just over the past 30 to 60 days, we've figured out what that is just by process of um, what is an essential, an essential business. Mm. I think, I think we've figured it out pretty quick. And I think there's going to be a lot of industries that don't come back because of it. But I mean, look, all those trades that you were talking about, the plumbers are still working. The electricians are still working. There's a house being built down the street. Guess what? That framing crew shows up every single day and frames that house. Um, the concrete was poured before that. All of those trades, there's still, there was a storm that ripped through over the summer. There's been about eight different roofs over the last month that have been replaced in my neighborhood. All of these essential businesses continue to work. And I honestly think like, that's the, that's the place that I want to be. Right. And luckily as educators, we're still going to, there's always going to be people that need high school diplomas and want to go to high school, need to go to high school, have to go to high school. And right. so we're in one of those essential businesses. Um, so I would say find, find an essential business. If it's a, if it's a luxury that's going to be cut off, um, I don't know, maybe that's not the best industry moving forward. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can make a fortune selling, I don't know, whatever the current equivalent of Beanie Babies is, or just, you know, like the, this week's fad of the century. Uh, but maybe nobody has money for fads, you know, in a bad economy. Maybe that's where the um, essential businesses come in with 25% unemployment. Yeah, the brick-and-mortar retailers, especially for clothing, are just suffering, suffering like the airlines, suffering like the cruise lines. I mean, they're they're getting hit hard. Everything from Victoria's Secret to Macy's, I mean, all those places are, I mean, lots of them filed for bankruptcy over the last month, and yeah, it's... It's interesting. It's definitely changing changing the way a, a lot of different industries operate and the work from home thing as well. I mean, how much money are you going to save and how much time are you going to save rather than driving an hour each way to your job when another job can offer you to work from home and save you those two hours? Well, that's two hours each day. My mom used to drive an hour to work each day. So two hours a day, that's 10 hours a week, right? We're talking... That's a part-time job. Yeah. That's 40 hours a month. I mean, that's a full work week that you're saving traveling. Not just that, but 
you know there's there are a lot of different perks that come with uh, working at home and I think I think that's going to actually save companies quite a bit of money too but it might put commercial real estate in a little bit of a pickle as well but we'll see you don't know yeah it'll be interesting to follow I think we'll find a big trend over the next five to ten years for sure a little bit of thinking ahead and just about I guess what could happen is kind of essential I guess is kind of what I'm hearing you say because uh, you know, if we work from home, then I've heard a few people say things like, why do I live in this expensive state? Not Kansas, mm. but I've heard them say about their state. Uh, there's a very famous podcaster, Joe Rogan, who was just wondering, why am I in California? I could be doing this in a state with no income tax, like Tennessee or Texas or one of the other seven states that have no income tax. I mean, he could literally do his job from anywhere. So then he asks himself, why am I in California? And he had a few good reasons, but maybe had more bad reasons against it. But I think there's a lot of professions like that where you just suddenly realize, wow, we could be doing just a whole bunch of these things from home. We're seeing a lot of uh, real estate investors become out-of-state real estate investors because it's not very profitable to make any passive income or cash flow property that you buy in Los Angeles or San Diego with the price tag, so on and so forth. So a lot of those investors from California, from New York, so on and so forth, are investing into rental property in the Midwest, which has actually driven up the price of rental property because the demand has increased. So we've definitely seen that over the last couple of years. I think what people really kind of need to realize in these situations is, I just remember this from the crash of 08, is people thought, oh my gosh, we're in this like horrible recession. And we were. However, Walmart was hiring, Dollar General was hiring, uh, you know, various grocery stores and things like that were hiring. We're seeing kind of a repeat of some of that now. I remember reading in 2008 that I guess alcohol sales rose for anything that was under $15, like six-pack of beer, 12-pack of beer, bottle of wine, and they cratered for anything that was above $15 a bottle. So that $16 bottle of wine, people let that sit on the shelf and it could just age a little bit more. And that $10 bottle, you know, that was the one that people went out there and got. There were just certain businesses that just actually took off and really just kind of thrived. I think home repair picked up, home sales dropped, car repair picked up, car sales dropped. Uh, just people have to kind of think about where are the hot spots, maybe. And maybe the good job is the hot spots. Maybe it's not follow your passion. Maybe it's follow what's hot. Could be. Yeah, yeah, definitely could be. Okay. Uh, well, I guess, uh, Mike, this has just been absolutely fantastic. I just, I have one other question that I, I just really want to ask, and it's this. I guess we're just going to call it the rocking chair question, which is, uh, let's just fast forward to you being 100 years old, and you're sitting on the porch of your house, and your loving wife is nearby, and you are surrounded by a circle of your children and a second circle of your grandchildren. And maybe there are a few great-grandchildren in being held in somebody's arms there. And there's the dog. And uh, they say, Grandpa, just tell us about your wonderful life, your, your great life. Uh, I guess w what do you want to be either known for or what do you want to look back and remember? You're 100. What, it, what constituted a good life? Whew, that's a tough one. I think... Just letting other people know that I get joy out of out of bringing other people joy. Like I, I don't need the spotlight. I don't need a record. I don't need state championship rings. All those things are very very nice, but I don't need that. But if I can, but if I can make your life better, if I can help you, and you know pass on faith to you, pass on knowledge to you, help you, be there for you, be a great parent for you, a great grandparent for you, a great great grandparent for you. Um, that that's that would be awesome. That'd be great. Thank you very much, Mike. This was excellent. Yeah, thanks Tim. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who on the surface look seemingly ordinary. And that's because they are. They're totally ordinary. No, just kidding. They have a lot going for them. Stay tuned for an ad and a disclaimer. Ad. I've got some books up on Amazon, and I think you might enjoy them. One is called Money for Teens, A Guide for Life. It came out of a personal finance class that I wrote. It has 100 bite-sized chapters 
But even better yet, it's got 19 exercises in the back, which I think teens have found helpful. Also, I've got a thriller up on Amazon called The Conspiracy of 1869. Terrorists invade the White House. They shoot up the place. They're trying to kill good guy, President U.S. Grant. Their problem? They've actually picked a really, really tough guy to try to eliminate. But who are these people? Why are they doing this? You have to read the book to find out. Is the entire United States at risk? It could be. Finally, I have another book as well called The Forbidden Book. And I don't want to say anything about it. I just would like for you to look it up. Finally, a disclaimer. This podcast does not exist to provide people with legal, technical, artistic, literary, uh, musical, or any other kind of advice. I have no advice. I have ideas. I might have changed my ideas by the time you've heard this podcast. Thank you again for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. Talk to you later.